The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to uh, Berean Bible Church. Appreciate you all being here this morning. Those of you watching live, thanks for joining us. Um, Remember, if you got questions, uh, get them in as soon as you can, so at the end of the service I can try to answer those questions for you. Uh, we're currently looking at the Upper Room Discourse, which hopefully you understand by now runs from John 13 to 17. And at the end of chapter 13, Yeshua has really shocked His disciples that are gathered together in that Upper Room because He tells them that one of them is going to betray them, betray Him, and that's kind of surprising. They thought they knew each other pretty well. They'd been together for a while. And he also says that Peter, who was their spokesman, is going to deny him. And what's worse than that, he tells them that he's leaving them. All of these factors cause the disciples to be deeply disturbed. So he tells them in 14.1, stop being troubled. And then he goes on to give them promises to strengthen and encourage them. Now, in this Upper Room Discourse, our Lord is instructing His disciples in light of His very soon departure, within 18 hours, He's departing from them as He's crucified on Calvary. So, let me draw your attention to something we went over a couple weeks ago that I just want to remind you of in this context. Verse 9 of John 14, Yeshua said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know Me, Philip? Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So the Lord is telling us here, if you want to know the glory, if you want to know the moral beauty of the Father, read the Gospels. And behold the person of Yeshua because He is the radiance of the glory of God. Those who know Yeshua shouldn't have any more questions about the Father. What is God like? What does He do? What does He think of this? Because as you read the Gospels and learn of Yeshua, you see the Father. And that's why He says, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father because Yeshua is God incarnate. I know we've gone over this a lot of times. I'm going to keep going over because there's nothing more important that you could grasp. Every act of Yeshua, the Son, was an act of God the Father. Is this a clear enough statement, you think, on the deity of Christ? Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. And, you know, this is a good enough reason for us to spend a lot of time reading the Gospels. Reading the Gospels over and over and over. Because as we see our Lord in the Gospels, acting, reacting, dealing with people, we see God the Father. Now, in our last study, we saw that Yeshua promised the disciples that they're going to do the same works that He did and even greater works than He did. And works is used here for the miraculous. It's not just talking about everyday works. He's talking about the miraculous. He also promised them that He would answer their prayers and provide everything that they needed if they asked Him in His name. And we looked at this for the last couple weeks. He says, greater works than these will He do. Then He said, if you ask anything in My name, I'll do it. And we've tried to stress this. I hope you got it, people. These promises are not for us. Okay? They're not written to us. I know a lot of Christians have stumbled over these because they read these promises and say, I can ask whatever I want and God will do it. And they pray and their prayers aren't answered. And they're like, what is wrong? Is something wrong with the Word of God? Is something wrong with me? Maybe I'm not a believer. And they question this. Listen, we're not going to be doing the miraculous. All our prayers are not going to be answered. These promises are made to the first century saints that God used to bring the emerging church from infancy to maturity. And this is context. This is understanding the Bible in its context. And we talked about that last week. Now, Yeshua goes on from here in verse 15 down the rest of the chapter, continuing His words of comfort and encouragement to His disciples. He explains to them why it's good if He does go away. So that's what He's doing here. He's trying to say, look, I know I'm going away, and I know that's troubling to you, but it's good that I go away. (coughs) He says in verse 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. 
Now, this is Yeshua's first reference in the Gospel to believers' love for Him. He's talked a lot about His love for us. Now He says, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. Now, in John 14, 15-31, Yeshua makes a number of similar statements about our love for Him. 14.15, He says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. 14.21, Whoever has My commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves Me. 14.23, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word. 14.24, Whoever does not love Me does not keep My words. 14.28, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. So, uh, how is our love for God demonstrated? I just gave you like five verses. How is our love demonstrated? It's through obedience. Okay? It's through obedience to the teachings. Now listen, If someone is not living in obedience to Christ's teaching, do they love Him? It's not a trick question. Okay? No! This is simple. Okay? Now, if they don't obey Him, He doesn't say they are not a believer, but He does clearly say they do not love Him. Love for Christ is demonstrated through our obedience to His teaching. Love is not a feeling. You know, people say, oh, I really love God. Really? Not according to the Bible, you don't because you're not obeying. It's not about how you feel. It's not about this tingly sensation you have. To Lazarus, there is only one test of love, and that test is obedience. Look at 1 John 5.3. For this is the love of God. And we just have this warm feeling every time we think of Him. No, that's not what He says. That we keep His commandments. And watch, His commandments are not burdensome. It's not like, oh, i got to do this. No, it's we do it out of love. We love to do it. Keeping the commandments. Now, this idea of love being demonstrated by obedience is not something new. The Tanakh already closely connected love for God with obedience to the commandments. Exodus 20, verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, the ones who love Him, they obey Him. Deuteronomy 11.1 You shall therefore love Yahweh your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His rules, His commands. If you love Him, you obey Him. He told the Israelites that a long time ago. Deuteronomy 11.22 For if you will be careful to do all these commandments that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all His ways, and holding fast to Him. So you do the commandments, you're loving Yahweh your God. So, again, I say if someone is not living in obedience to the Lord's teaching, they cannot say they love Him. I don't care how they feel. Obedience is love. When you love someone, you do this because you want to do this. Alright? He says in verse 24, Whoever does not love Me, the person that doesn't love Me, how's that demonstrated? They don't keep My words. And the word you hear is not Mine, but the Father's who sent Me. The reason people don't obey is because they don't love. Because love for God is motivation to obey. Alright, let's break down verse 15. Because it's important that we really understand what He is saying here. He says, if you love Me. Now, we've talked about this before. In the Greek, you've got first class condition, second class condition, third class condition. This is a third-class condition, which means that Yeshua neither assumes that His followers love Him, nor assumes that they don't. It's the best use of if that we have. Okay, If. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. If. 
A third class condition assumes neither the positive nor the negative. First class condition would be best translated as since. Since you love me. But this is if, because maybe you will and maybe you won't love me. Robertson's word picture says this. If you keep on loving me. He says keep is a present active subjunctive. So maybe you'll... In other words, they do love him. They are loving him. But if you keep on loving me, because maybe they won't, Maybe you will, maybe you won't, but if you keep on loving me, then he says, you will keep my commandments. Now, keep here is a future active indicative of tereo. This is not an aorist imperative. You know what an imperative is, right? Command. A future active indicative is simply uh, progressive action in the future. You will be keeping my commandments. If you are loving me, if you're going to love me, you'll be keeping my commandments. Now, the KJV has this as an imperative. If you love me, keep my commandments. So it's like, if you love me, then do this. All right? But that's not what he's saying here. Robertson's words picture says this is a future active and not an imperative. If you're loving me, you're going to be obeying. He's not telling you to do something. He's saying this is what will happen if you're loving me. So Yeshua is saying to His disciples, if, maybe you will and maybe you won't, keep on loving me, but if you do keep on loving me, you will be keeping my commandments. Because love for Yeshua will motivate the believer to obey Him. We keep His commandments because we love Him. Now, what commandments is He talking about? What? Okay, Veronica says to love one another. Well, I think the new commandment in the context here is probably what he's referring to. He says, a new commandment I give you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. So how does he say that we're to love others? Just as I have loved you. Now think about that for a second, people, okay? The sacrificial work of Yeshua on the cross of Calvary is the new standard for Christians' love for His fellow believers. Basically, people, we could say this, you cannot live out the Christian life without a commitment to love other people. Now, people might say, well, maybe He means this commandment or that commandment. Listen, when Yeshua was questioned about which is the greatest commandment, what did He do? He boiled it all down and said, this is it, people. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Seconds like unto it, love your neighbor yourself. That, those two cover them all. Okay? If you love your neighbor, you won't steal. You won't commit adultery. You won't lie to them. You know, if you love them, you're not going to do any of those things. So that's all he needs to say. Just love God with everything you got and love your neighbor yourself. Isn't that simple? <laughs> yeah, it's simple to say. Now let me make it clear here. Because we said simple. Uh, it is only by God's transforming grace that believers, and listen, only believers, can love one another. This command is not to unbelievers. This is to God's children. Only believers can love them as Yeshua loved them. All right. Now, there's probably a person or maybe two in your life that you would love to the point of sacrificial death if you had to. You just love them. But we're called to love everybody this way, including our enemies. So the only way we can do this is in dependence upon the Spirit of God. Loving one another as Christ loved us, listen people, is supernatural. And that's why when the world sees this, they're going to realize they belong to the Christ. Because this is not normal behavior. It's supernatural. It can only be done as the Spirit of God works through us and allows us to love one another. So Yeshua is saying, if you guys continue loving Me, you will, keep, you will be keeping My commands, you will love one another just as I have loved you, and the world will know. They'll recognize that you're My disciples. I'm not there anymore. I'm not going to be around. You can't just follow Me and they say, He's, they're disciples of the Rabbi Yeshua. 
Because I'm not there, but they will know by your love. And because loving one another as I have loved you is humanly impossible, he says, I'm going to send you someone to help. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Now, that's the idea. I want you to do this. You can't do it on your own. I'm going to send a helper. Now, despite what many commentators say, loving Christ and keeping His commandments are not the condition for receiving the Spirit. See, people read that. Well, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then, because you love me and keep my commandments, I will give, ask the Father and He'll send you this. No! He is not saying, if you obey me, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is promised to all believers without exception. You're not a believer if you don't have the Spirit. It's not some special group of people that get it, who meet certain conditions. Look what he said in John 7, 38 and 39. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit has not been given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. So again, he makes it very clear. Whoever believes in me, he says it twice. Those who believe in him, they receive the Spirit. The rivers of living water is a reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So all believers receive the Spirit. They're to receive, and he says, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. So they hadn't received Him yet, but they're, they're going to receive Him. And he's referring to the day of Pentecost here, the birth of the church. This includes all subsequent believers of the church age. All believers from Pentecost on, everyone who's a believer has the Spirit. You don't have to do anything special. You don't have to say anything special. You just, because you're a believer, you have the Spirit. Now, our text in verse 16 introduces us to the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to give you another helper who is the Spirit of truth. Now, the Spirit has already been mentioned five times in this gospel already, all right? In 132 and following, we see the reference to Yeshua baptizing people in the Holy Spirit. He's going to do that. He's going to baptize in the Spirit. In chapter 3, you'll remember the Spirit's work of regeneration with Nicodemus. He says, you've got to be born from above. Well, how's that happen? Well, it's the work of the Spirit, he tells them. In 423, Yeshua declares that God is Spirit. And in 663, Yeshua tells the crowds that it is the Spirit who gives life. And then in 737-39, which we just looked at, he announces the work of the Spirit as being rivers of living water within the believers. But in our text, we're introduced to the Holy Spirit who for the first time in this text is revealed as the third person of the Trinity. In this text, the Spirit is called a helper and He's called the Spirit of truth. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper. So here, Yeshua is going to ask the Father, and the Father is going to send the Spirit. Now in verse 26, it says the Father will send the Spirit in the name of Yeshua. In 15.26, Yeshua, it says that Yeshua will send the Spirit to them from the Father. And then in 16.7, Yeshua will send the Spirit to them. So the Spirit comes from the Father. The Spirit comes from Yeshua. We don't have to make a lot of distinction here, people, because they are one. They are different persons, but they're in unity on what they're doing. Alright? Now, He is called, the Holy Spirit is called a helper. And if you have a different translation, translations translate this word all kinds of different ways. The Greek word here is parakletos. This word is only found five times in the Scripture. It's only found in the writings of Lazarus. Okay? This is a word that Lazarus uses particularly four times in the Gospel, once in 1 John. Parakletos has various meanings. It can mean an advocate, an intercessor, a counselor, a protector, a supporter. The literal Greek etymology 
comes from the word para, which means to the side of, and kaleo, which means to summon. Therefore, the word can be interpreted to mean to be called to someone's side in order to accompany, to console, to protect, to defend that person. There's really no good English equivalent to the Greek word parakletos. One English word just doesn't give it the significance. Now, some translate this word here as counselor. All right, he'll send you another counselor, which has problems in our day because you think of a counselor, you think of a therapist or something, okay? Well, he's coming along, he's going to be your therapist. That's not the idea at all, okay? Or you think of a counselor maybe as a camp counselor or a marriage counselor. That's not what it's trying to say here. The word helper here that the ESV uses, that's not a really good translation either. When you think of a helper, you think of someone who's inferior, okay? They're just a helper, okay? They're here to help me. Unless it's your wife, of course, who's a help meet, and then, uh, then they're superior, probably. Okay? <laughs> you like I did that? <laughs> All right, so it's just hard to take one English word and translate it. It has more the sense of a legal counselor here. Someone who acts like an advocate who will present the case to you, here's the case against you, and represent you to others. All right? In secular contexts, Parakletos often referred to a legal counselor, a representative of the court. And I think that gives us a better understanding. Now he says, I'm not just going to give you a counselor, I'm going to give you another counselor, another Parakletos, another helper. This is significant here, all right? Understanding what he's saying here. The Greek language has two words for another. Alas and heteros. Now, alas means something is numerically distinct from its antecedent, but of the same character. We could say another of the same kind. That's what this word here is. This word is alas. Now, heteros means that two things or two people are distinct, they're different in character. This would be another of a different kind. This is where we get our English word heterosexual, meaning you're in a relationship with someone who's different than you, all right, of a different kind. So we see this word heteros, that's not the word in our text, alos is used here, but we see heteros used in Galatians 1.6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a heteros gospel. You're turning to a gospel that is another gospel of a different kind. But the word Yeshua uses in our text means another of the same kind. In other words, I'm going to send you another counselor just like me. Now look what 1 John 2.1 says. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't want you people sinning. But if anyone does sin, we have a parakletos, an advocate with the Father, Yeshua the Christ, the righteous. So Yeshua is a parakletos. But he says in our text, I'm going to give you another one just like me, another of the same kind, parakletos. He says, I'm giving you another one just like myself. Yeshua had been a parakletos to the disciples during His earthly ministry. And now He's sending another. Alright, now think with me people. Since Yeshua is Yahweh, we've established that for 14 chapters now, and He's equal to Yahweh the Father, And since the Holy Spirit is another just like Yeshua, what does that tell us about the Spirit? Okay. He's Yahweh. I hope you're not getting confused here. I thought you said Yeshua is Yahweh. He is. I thought you said the Father is Yahweh. He is. Alright, this is what we call the Trinity. The New Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is not an impersonal force. He's a divine person. And we could see this from many texts. For example, in Acts, Peter confronted Ananias because he lied. And he says this, But Peter said, Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? The, the, the sin here is not keeping back part of the proceeds of the land. The sin is lying about it. He said, I'm giving everything. He was trying to look spiritual. He could have said, look, I sold my land, I'm giving you half. All right? The lie was to make himself look good. Well, then Peter says in the next verse, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, you can do what you want with it. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. <clears throat> now, you see what he just did there? Verse 4, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse, I mean, verse 3. Verse 4, you not lied to man, but to God. So he lied to the Holy Spirit, and in lying to the Holy Spirit, he lied to God because the Holy Spirit is God. You can't lie to an impersonal force. Okay? The New Testament writers attribute the inspiration of the Bible to the Spirit because He is the Spirit of truth. He inspires truth. We see this in 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were borne along by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament writers describe divine attributes to the Spirit, such as omniscience, the power to affect the new birth. That's the Spirit's work. The power to cast out demons. The ability to baptize believers into the body of Christ, to bestow spiritual gifts. The power to sanctify believers. These are all attributed in the Bible to the Spirit of God. All of those things you might say about the character and the divine nature of Yeshua are equally true about the Spirit. All right? He's the Spirit of God. He's eternal. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, righteous, holy, loving, just. All those things. Because the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Now the Spirit is linked with the Father and the Son in Trinitarian texts. The Bible never uses the word Trinity. Some people think that's a big deal. Oh, the Bible never says Trinity, so it can't be true. It's a word we use to explain the Trinitarian God, all right? But we see that throughout scriptures um, that tell us this. For example, look at our, our verse, John 14, 6. And I, who's the I? Who's talking here? Yeshua. And I will ask the Father. Well, if he's asking the Father, Yeshua and the Father are not the same person, right? He's not talking to himself here. He's talking to the Father. So there you have the Son, you have the Father, and He will give you another, another one just like me, helper. So there you have a trinity. You've got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in that verse. Does the verse say, this, is, this means they're a trinity? No. It just tells us that they're there. Alright? Now, three persons, one God. That's what the trinity. Now, people try to describe it. It's like this. It's, it's like nothing you can come up with because it's God, okay? But it's three persons. The Son, the Father, the Spirit, but one God. We see the same idea in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Yeshua, the Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So there, the whole trinity is in that verse. Verses like Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. New Testament revelation is clear. There are three persons within the Godhead. Now, most non-Christian religions deny the triunity of God. Islam denies it. Judaism denies it. Hinduism denies it. Buddhism denies it. What I found interesting is that, you know, Muslims believe that Muhammad is the fulfillment of Yeshua's promise that he would send another counselor. <laughs> well, yeah, a little bit late, but here's the problem. When Yeshua said, I'm going to send another, alas, parakletos, another of the same kind, someone else just like me, was Muhammad just like Yeshua? Not even close. Okay? Oh my word, he was a child molesting uh, warmonger who loved to kill people. You know, he's nothing like Yeshua. Nothing like Yeshua. One of his wives was six years old when he took her. 
So, but they say, yeah, he's the fulfillment of this promise. He's the other comforter. There's nothing comforting about Muhammad. Okay? Take your sword and go kill people. He's another, Muhammad was another of a very different kind. He was heteros, not alas. He says, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. How long do you think the Spirit's going to stick around? In other words, He's not going to be with you for three years like I've been. He's going to be with you forever. Now, forever here is the word I own. And I heard David in the back say, to the age. Okay, it's a good translation of forever. To the age, to the end of the age. Thayer says that I own means forever, an unbroken age, or a period of time. To the age. Well, what age is he talking about? Is he talking about the old covenant age? No. Because the Spirit wasn't going to come until the new covenant began. So, the, until the end of the new covenant age. When's that? Now, it's an unending age. It's an everlasting age. So there is no end. So guess what? The Spirit is coming to be with us forever. Now people get try to get technical confused on this. They say, well, the Spirit's with us. What about the Lord? Where's, listen, we got the whole Trinity. The whole Trinity is involved in this. Okay, They're all with us. We're the dwelling place of God. All the God. All of them. Father, Son, and Spirit. And you know, I think ministering to these guys, particularly as He was, you know, while Yeshua was in His human nature, He could only be at one place at a time. Alright? He was localized, but not limited. But the Holy Spirit in His divine nature knows no such obstacles. So, He's always with them to strengthen them, to encourage them, to give them, even if they're split up, the Spirit's with all of them, no matter where they are. Before, it was local in the localized presence of the Lord. Bless you. Look at John 14.7. He says, even the Spirit of truth. So he's called the parakletos, the counselor, the helper, the advocate, and he's also called the Spirit of truth. What is the first time we see the word Spirit? Anybody know? It's early on. Okay, Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, Spirit here is from the Hebrew Ruach. And Ruach means wind, breath, air, soul, spirit. It has expressed the spirit or divine wind of God. Now, although the Hebrew word ruach does not, I mean, it can be used for human breath also. The use of this word in associated with, with Yahweh is the very breath that comes from the mouth of the living God. In other words, it's His power. It is the breath of God that inspired the prophets. It is the breath of God that given to kings their coronation. Now, in the Greek translation of the Tanakh, and in the New Testament, the Hebrew word ruach is usually translated as pneuma. And pneuma is the same way. Pneuma means breath, wind, all those same things. And it's used to identify the Holy Spirit. So here we have the breath of truth, or the Spirit of truth. So the Helper is also called the Spirit of truth. And I think it's primarily because He communicates truth. We just saw in uh, John 14, 6, where the Lord says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yeshua claims to be truth. Well, the Spirit of truth may in part define the Helper as the Spirit who bears witness to the truth. To the truth that Yeshua is Yahweh. He's the Spirit of truth. Now, I think there's a connection here between Advocate, Perkletos, and Spirit of truth. Because an Advocate uses the facts to present the truth. Therefore, as the description of the Holy Spirit's ministry, we see that He comes to us to apply truth to our lives. That's how strengthening and encouragement takes place. As God's truth is presented to our hearts and minds, and that's the Holy Spirit's ministry. He's not a vague force of good. He is God in action applying the Word of God to our lives. Now, in numerous places we find the Holy Spirit relating to truth. He's the giver of truth. As one we've already looked at, He divinely inspired the Scripture. He moved holy men of God to write precisely what He wanted to say. 
The Spirit of God came upon Old Covenant believers temporarily to give them strength, but normally He left. So He says He's the Spirit of truth and He's going to dwell with you and be in you. Now, He did dwell with them, but He says this is in the future. He's going to be with you. And what He's speaking of here is an abiding, permanent relationship. He's not coming and going like He did in the Old Covenant. He will remain on believers for the rest of their lives. Now, this new relationship with the Holy Spirit is one of the distinctive differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the Spirit came, performed tasks, left. And that's why David prayed, Lord, take not Your Spirit from me. And it cracks me up when I hear New Testament believers praying that. It's biblical. It's in the Bible. Yeah, but it's in a different age. You know, for you to say, God, don't take Your Spirit from me, it's saying, you said you won't, but I'm not sure I believe you, so I'm asking you not to. He's not going to take His Spirit from you. It's a permanent indwelling relationship. David prayed that because that was Old Covenant. The promise of the Spirit was given through the Old Covenant believers that this New Covenant was coming. And there was a change going to take place. Look at Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. And I'll give you a new heart. And a new spirit. This is what the work of regeneration is, people. It's a new heart. God promises, I'm going to take out the stony heart. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. He says, I'm going to remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Only God can do that, people. It's a spiritual surgery. And I will put my spirit within you. And I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's going to guide you. He's going to lead you by the Spirit of God. Now, is this promise of the Holy Spirit in Ezekiel and in John 14, 7 for us? Is He promising us this? Well, this promise was given to the disciples in that upper room, but the indwelling Spirit was given to all believers at Pentecost. From Pentecost on, all believers have the Holy Spirit and they have all of Him. All right? He said, the Spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. Now, world here is cosmos. And if you've been following us through this Gospel, you know that Lazarus uses this word in three different ways. It can refer to the habitable world in which Yeshua ministered. It can refer to the spiritually corrupt world dominated by Satan. And it can refer to the world of the elect. Here it's used of the moral order and rebellion against God. The world, those who are not believers, those who are not part of my kingdom, they cannot receive the Spirit. They cannot accept Him. The truth is the world does not know the Spirit of truth, and they cannot accept Him. We've seen that over and over. We use 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man, which is the man without the Spirit, doesn't accept the things of God. Why? Because they're foolishness to him. He can't accept it because he has a heart of stone. He just doesn't get it. He says, you know him. Talking to the disciples. They knew him because he was just like Yeshua. Alas. He was another one just like him. And they had seen him working through Yeshua. Remember when Yeshua was doing things and they would attribute what Yeshua did to Satan. And he said to them, you have blasphemed, not me. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit was working through Yeshua. So he says, so since the Spirit was working through Yeshua, they'd been with Him for three years, they knew Him. They knew Him. He says, for He dwells with you and He will be in you. He's drawing a contrast between the Spirit's abiding with the disciples and His future indwelling them. And again, this change took place on Pentecost, the birthday of the church, when the Spirit was poured out on the early church. And since Pentecost, all believers are indwelt by the Spirit. Look what Paul says in Romans 8-9. He says, you, he's writing to Christians, believers, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You're not under the old covenant domination, which is the flesh, you're in the Spirit. And if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, now watch what he says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. See, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. 
The gift of the Spirit was for every believer. It's for believers individually, for believers corporately, the dwelling place of God. We literally, at Pentecost, believers became the holy temple of God, the dwelling place. It was being built. Ephesians 2.22 says, In Him, Christ, you also are being built together. It's a present action happening into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, God, we are the temple of God, people. We are sacred space. God dwells within us if we have trusted Him. Yeshua goes on to say in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, orphans in that culture are very different than our culture. I mean, they're both end up with the, you know, the bad, short end of the stick, so to speak. You know, they get put into the system. But in that day, there was no system. Okay? And that's why throughout the, the Old Covenant, God says, you need to take care of orphans, you need to take care of widows, because they have no one to take care of themselves. Alright? So you take care of those who are helpless. And I'm not going to leave you helpless, He says. I'm going to come to you. Now, what does He mean by this? Boy, the arguments go crazy over this. So I'm going to come to you. Is this talking about the second coming? There's three different, mainly three different interpretations here. Some say it refers to the second coming. Some see it as Him coming in the person of the Spirit, because the Spirit's the same as Him, so when the Spirit comes, He comes. They see it that way. Others see it as Yeshua's appearances to the disciples after the resurrection. And arguments have been advanced for all three of these and variations of them. All right? One commentator writes this. I thought it was kind of comical, so I noted it. He says, Some believe Jesus is referring to the second coming. If that is the case, the disciples there were orphaned because Jesus did not return in their lifetime. (laughs) And I said, really? So he said he would, but he didn't? I thought that was interesting. He said Jesus did not return. They stayed orphans. So his argument is this can't be referring to the second coming, but the problem is he doesn't even understand the second coming because look at what Yeshua said, Matthew 16. For the Son of Man, that's Christ, is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and He's going to repay every person according to what He has done. That's the second coming. Then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the people right there standing there, the one he's talking to, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So Yeshua says, some of you guys, you're not going to all die before I return. But the commentator says the disciples were orphaned because He didn't return in their lifetime. So he basically says, no, Christ was lying here when He said He would. That's serious stuff, people. He says, I'm going to come back before some of you have died. And he's not talking to us in that context. None of us were there. The you is the people he's talking to, the disciples. Some of you will still be alive. So either you got a lot of old disciples running around somewhere. Yeshua came back in the first century like he said he did, or he lied. And, you know, the only, there was only one good option there, okay? I see Christ as referring to the fact, you know, so what's he talking about here? I will come again. I think he's talking about after the resurrection. He appeared to them for a period of 40 days, teaching them, encouraging them. We see this in Acts 1-3. He presented Himself, this is after the crucifixion and the resurrection. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So He came to them, He teaches them, He's encouraging them. This is after His resurrection. And the language here is personal. He says, I will come to you and you will see Me. So out of those three options, I think he's talking about his actual presence to them after the resurrection. He says, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will also live. Now, according to the book of Acts, Yeshua appeared only to believers after his resurrection. Look at Acts 10, 40 and 41. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. 
So they saw him. They spent time with him. Now the world, the lost world, saw him no more. He says, because I live, you will live also. See, Yeshua's resurrection was a pledge of their own resurrection. He promised life and then he rose from the dead. So that can give you some encouragement. Look at Romans 8.11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, and if you're a believer, He dwells in you, He who raised Christ Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. He raised Christ, He will raise you. That's a promise for believers. The resurrection of Yeshua was God's demonstration of His power and willingness to give life to all those that were His. He says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in Me, and I in you. In that day. In what day? Well, I think this is referring to Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit comes. This is when they're indwelt. This is when they really start catching on to some things. You know, this is when Peter, the big coward, now stands up and he's bold and he's got the Spirit and he's willing to take on the establishment. Now, some interpreters take this as referring to the resurrection in that day, after the resurrection. But I don't think they caught on quite yet, all right? But here's the, here's the deal. If it's the resurrection or if it's Pentecost, there's only 50 days difference in there, so I'm not going to argue with you over 50 days, okay? You pick what you like, but I just think it refers to Pentecost because that's when they really got some knowledge. All right, he says in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Boy, he keeps hammering this theme home, you know. And he who loves me will be loved in my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Again here, we see the idea that obedience is the proof of love. The believer who walks in obedience is loving the Lord. The believer who does not walk in obedience does not love the Lord. And he who loves me, he says, will be loved by my Father. I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now listen, in the context here of verse 18 to 20, this was a promise that Yeshua would disclose himself to the disciples after his resurrection. It was an encouragement to them to continue obeying him, to continue unloving him. Listen, the one who loves me, my Father's going to love him. I'm going to love, I'm going to come and manifest myself to him. And I think he's talking about after the resurrection, I'm going to show up and visit with you guys. Now, I've used this verse before many times out of context. I get asked questions all the time by people, what do you think about this verse? And I usually respond, I haven't studied that yet. Because if I haven't taught through it verse by verse, I have opinion on it probably, but it's all that's all it is, Okay. So I think when you put this in context, you see the promise he's making here, manifesting himself, is to the disciples. Now, can we make an application to today, to us? I think we can. And I think it would go something like this. Some believers love Yeshua more than other believers do. And that results in some believers obeying the Lord more than others, and therefore enjoying a more intimate relationship with Him. We've seen this already as we walk through this book. You know, the Lord talked about abundant life. He talks about, you know, when when a Christian walks in fellowship with God, there's blessings to that fellowship. And when a Christian walks out of fellowship with God, there's consequences, there's disciplines to that. All right? You know, that's what Jude says. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Stay in that relationship because there's blessings that come from that. So when you're walking with God, when you're, when you're loving Him and you're being obedient to the Word of God, there's an intimate relationship. We, we give a greater understanding of Him because we're in that relationship. And we enjoy Him more. There's blessings that come. Now, every individual who has believed in the Lord has spiritual life. But not many have what the Bible calls abundant life. Why? Because abundant life is not available to all. I mean, it's available to all believers, but all believers don't have it because I think obedience is connected here. You want the abundant Christian life 
It comes from following the Lord. It's like you can't kind of go your own way, do your own thing and say, why isn't the Lord blessing me? It's just, you know, following the precepts of the Word of God have so many built-in blessings. For example, if you follow the Lord's commandments and you don't go kill other people, you get to enjoy a lot more freedoms. Okay? You get to wear the kind of clothes you want. You don't have to wear a certain kind of jumpsuit. You get to, you know, live in the kind of room you want, have the mattress you want. You get to have all kinds of choices if you do what's right. If you don't, guess what? You're you're in prison. Are you still a believer? Yeah. You're just a locked up one. Okay, because there's blessings to obedience. The abundant life is available to those who walk in obedience. And if you're loving the Lord and obeying His commandments and loving one another as He's called us to, there's incredible blessings to that, people. You get the blessing of fellowshipping with your Lord. You're in a communion with Him. And He blesses that. You know, look at the Apostle Paul. And by when I say you know, blessings in abundant life. I don't mean just material things, all right? Look at Paul. Paul was beaten, shipwrecked, stoned. did everything you could do to this guy, and this guy was just one happy guy, all right? He had joy in the Lord that nobody could explain. Because it wasn't about his circumstances, it was about his relationship. And when you walk with the Lord, you get those blessings, and it doesn't matter what the circumstances bring, because they're going to bring different things. But there'll be a peace and a contentment in your heart because of that relationship. Listen, people, we were created to walk in fellowship with Him. When we do that, we know the abundant life. We know joy beyond measure. Let's pray. Father, thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us, for Your provision in our lives, for providing, Father, so much for us. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to correctly apply these verses to our own life, Father. We know that we have the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling us. We thank You for that. He is the parakletos, the empowerer, the encourager, the advocate. And because we have that, Lord, we can keep Your commandments. We can obey You. We can walk in Your ways. But we have choices to make, Lord. I pray that You would help us to see that just the blessing of walking and living in fellowship with You. Amen.